0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Is anyone among you suffering? Says James. And then he offers this counsel. Let him or her pray. In an ideal world, which going to be in very soon, just a reminder. In an ideal world, suffering and prayer wouldn't have to go together. Prayer will continue. We'll actually have direct communion with God and with the Lamb forever. But suffering will no longer be a necessary part of our devotional lives. We're just not in an ideal world yet. And so while we are here, you cannot pray without pain. We must pray, as scripture says, at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication when we are joyful, when we are sad. But the fact of the matter is that even for us who are redeemed, who have new natures in Christ, we can be like old stubborn King Manasseh, who for most of the time was wicked. Yet we do read of him, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself. Even righteous David, not a wicked king, admitted that the same is true when he said, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. Distress, pain, suffering, leading to supporting prayer. The two go together. They are close friends in this life. I myself, in certain seasons, when I look through old journals, there will be a season of An increased amount of sort of writing devotional poetry, prayers if you will, which is what we're going to encounter in Jonah today. This is a prayer, but it's poetry, just like the Psalms, it's both. I notice when I go through my journals that there will be an intense period of lots of these poems, and then none for a long time, and then they return. (laughs) And I tell you, at least in my case, and maybe you found it so in yours, those big gaps in between are when life is going well. Suffering and prayer, they go together. Pain and prayer join their hands. My example doesn't really matter. Christian history attests to the very same thing. If you were to rewind this morning about 500 years to the Protestant Reformation of the early 1500s, you would find the German reformer Martin Luther had just the same experience. The apex of the Reformation was about 1520, That's when Luther officially was cut off from the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. He was a wanted man and should have died at that point. It was around that time he publishes the New Testament in German. That was a big deal. No longer in Latin. People can read it. And it's not long after that time as well that he writes some of his most important treatises. However, if you fast forward from that very exciting time in 1520 where he's making his bold stand about a decade, and come to the year 1527, things were really unraveling for Martin Luther and the Reformation at that point in many ways. There were reformers in several European countries, but by 1527, instead of being united, they were falling apart, largely over a debate about the Lord's Supper, its nature. Luther was weighed down by this, breaking apart from those he would want to be his allies. It was largely his fault, but That's what was happening at the same time, 1527, while that concern weighs upon him, there are these radical reformers who are going too far, taking his ideas and doing crazy things with them. There had been a peasant revolt that weighs upon him too, and he got incredibly sick, so sick that he thought he was going to die. He had to stop in the middle of a sermon he was preaching in that year, around that time, because he couldn't preach anymore. He was so sick. And so he sunk into maybe the greatest of all the depressions that Martin Luther experienced around that year. A little bit later, he started to recover physically, but still was disheartened, and he wrote to his friend Melanchthon this. I spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain, and I still tremble, completely abandoned by Christ. Christ. I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. Right about that same time, a plague struck Wittenberg where he lived. So think COVID, but with a much higher fatality rate. 1527, that's pain. We look back and we honor someone like Martin Luther because we know how the story turns out. But you know what? He didn't just like you don't know how your story turns out. All he knew at that time was the pain and the agony and the suffering of all of these trials coming together. But do you know what else happened in the year 1527? Martin Luther put pen to paper and he wrote what is probably the greatest hymn ever sung by the Church of God. A mighty fortress is our God. That poetic prayer to God, if you will, that psalm, would not have taken place without the pain of that year. Pain and prayer, they go together, pray at all times, don't wait till you're in pain, but when pain comes, your prayers change, you know that. They change, they deepen, they thicken in the midst of desperation and as he says, blasphemy against God in his case, and yet out of that pain comes this beautiful prayer that the church prays with them, even we do to this day. Suffering is the best teacher in the school of Christ. Tears, the best textbook. And misery, the most helpful PowerPoint when it comes to praying. Now, we know that's been true of Jonah. Because we've not seen Jonah doing much praying in the book of Jonah through the first chapter. Just the opposite. He's been trying to flee from God. God wanted him to go to wicked Nineveh and preach to them. And Jonah, a great prophet of the northern kingdom, refused to do it. So he runs away, and it's not until when? Not until a near-death experience at the bottom of the ocean, and then taken into the gut of a fish, a large fish, and he's there three days, and it's not until then, until that degree of pain, that he finally prays. And that's what we have in chapter 2 of Jonah, the prayer Which you'll notice the very beginning of our text in verse 2. We looked at verse 1 last week. Verse 2 begins saying. (laughs) It took the fish opening its mouth for Jonah to open his mouth. And finally he does toward God. And the first thing he's going to say is, I called out to the Lord. The pain produced the prayer. So let's read the first part of this prayer. Which is primarily focused on the pain that Jonah was experiencing when God saved him. Beginning in verse 2. Saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And I am stopping our text halfway through the psalm this morning, even halfway through the verse. Because next week you will see Jonah has gone down in this passage and next week he will begin to go up. Next week is much more hopeful But this week, I want to focus on the pain that Jonah's describing, the suffering that he underwent and what that produced in him, which, of course, is prayer, So we're going to see that. Before we get to hope next week, we need to dwell a little bit on suffering. That's what half of this entire psalm is about, in different poetic ways, saying the same thing, which is, wow, that was really bad. (laughs) I don't want to do that again. And he describes it in various ways. But that was the way that God took hold of Jonah and squeezed him until finally he dripped a prayer of worship. Because he's a very dry prophet. But that's the way that God got that out of him. It's no accident that this prayer should begin with so much suffering. In fact, this is a prayer composed for you, the people of God. And you know that Jesus has said in the world... You will have tribulation, which is a big word we don't use a lot. It means bad things, okay? So in the world, you're going to have bad things, and you know that because you've had them and we'll have more. Peter, the apostle, spoke of suffering toward us believers, and he said, to this you've been called. Sorry if you didn't know that, (laughs) entering into the Christian life, but you've been called to suffering. So don't, he says then afterward, therefore... Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If you're suffering right now, various degrees you all are, if you're suffering intensely right now, I want you to know it's very normal. It's not to minimize the pain of it, but this is the Christian life. Sometimes we bring the suffering on ourselves and it's a consequence of our sin. As with Jonah, sometimes it's disease, sometimes it's something natural and outside of us, sometimes it's decisions of other people, whatever it may be, you're suffering, and Peter tells you through scripture, this is normal, this is what you were called to, don't think that this is an odd season, if you were a Gentile in the way Jesus uses that, an unbeliever, then you would be mainly interested in how do I get out from this suffering, of course you probably think that, that's fine, That's not your main interest. If you are a Christian, if you get out from this suffering, you're going into other suffering. This is the Christian life. So, get comfortable here. This is what it is. I don't want you to feel like this is such a hard season, and of course, 2020, we can all complain. There's been a lot of difficult things. But I want you to know, 2020 or not, this is the Christian life. Don't think that if your life's really hard right now as a follower of Jesus Christ, something's gone wrong. Actually, nothing's gone wrong. That's why even here with Jonah, we are given in this psalm, literally half a psalm that's not primarily focused on the worship of God. Not yet. It's not focused on hope yet. That first half of the psalm with a little bit of hope in it But it's mainly just describing how horrible his situation was. It's telling you, I was suffering and these are the ways it looked while I was doing it. So, why provide this psalm for the people of God? Because you're going to feel like you're drowning too. You probably feel that way today for some of you. So, this poetry is to say, as if Christ were looking at you this morning and saying, Look, I, I understand. How do we relate to God when we are suffering? That's why this psalm is here. To help you understand not how to stop suffering, God will make that happen in good time, but to help you understand while you are suffering, how do you relate to the God who allows the suffering in your life? How do you praise Him? How do you please Him while that's happening? That's why you have this psalm. If that's your question this morning, this psalm's not just going to be a matter of historical curiosity, although it is that, very interesting, but it's more than that, it's your very life. This is helping you to endure your suffering well. You need that. You need to have the example here of Jonah. God's unpleasant discipline, Hebrews 12:11 tells us, yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Don't you want that? And it says it yields it to those who have been trained by it. So not universally. Many people suffer and are worse for it. But if you are a follower of Christ, God is your father. When he disciplines you, if you are trained by it, then it yields in your life the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the point of it. To yield that. And therefore we have to be trained by it. So in a real sense... You've got to take hold of suffering and grief and agony and not shirk it and try to flee it. Take hold of it like a wild mare in the field and jump on its back and ride it toward holiness. That's the point of suffering in this life. And this psalm is to help you to do that, to embrace the suffering that you are in and to make the best use of it and to be trained by it and to know how do you turn it, not toward a skepticism and a bitterness toward God, but rather a heart that is open and worshipful toward him. Because that's where Jonah gets by the end of the psalm. So, with that in mind, we're going to look at the psalm in its two parts. Half of it this week, half next week. And for those who like outlines, this week we're going... I'll alliterate it for you as well. This week we're going to look at the pain that Jonah experiences. That's most of this and will be most of our passage. But we also want to look at how that pain produces prayer. Because we see that in the text as well. So we'll see the pain for most of this message in in the text as it's described. Jonah's pain, which is very similar to yours. And we'll see how his pain produced prayer and can do the same in your life. So if we're going to appreciate the good that the pain produced in Jonah, then we need to go to the bottom of the ocean, in a sense. And enter with him into that pain and that suffering. That's what we're doing right here. You're going to find that the suffering of Jonah, you'll notice it's very poetic. There's a reason for that. It could have just continued as prose and simply told you he sunk to the bottom of the ocean. But the reason this is put in a psalm is because it's for us. We're to learn from it and also because it can kind of be taken and set as a template over whatever suffering you're experiencing as a Christian. Because you'll find the experience very similar, whether you're in water or not makes no difference. You don't have to be swallowed by a fish. You're going to go through some of the same experiences as a believer. That's why it's turned into a psalm for God's people to use in worship here. In fact... Verses 5 and 6 give us the description. So we're going to work through this text a little different today. We're going to work backwards because it's not till the end that he just fully describes what he was going through. So let's start there in 5 and 6 again for the description of his pain. The waters closed in over me to take my life, he says. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Like I said, what amazes us about this passage is how universal it is in its application. Jonah was underneath the Mediterranean Sea. He had been thrown overboard. He was a specific, real, historical figure. At that time, a long time ago, in the Middle East, he was really thrown into the water. He literally sunk down into it, and a real big fish of some nature came and took him into its gut. So that happened. Likelihood is that's not going to happen to you. (laughs) Because of that, we could be tempted to think, This is irrelevant, but it's not. Because like I said, this is sort of a template of suffering. The way that we know that, I'm not just making that up because I'm a pastor and I need to apply this to you somehow. The way that we know that that's true is because Jonah is using some of the identical language that we find in the book of Psalms. By persons who were never in the Mediterranean Sea and never eaten by a fish. Yet they use these words about water as a metaphor. So for example, David himself never sunk into the sea to be eaten by a fish. Yet he says, speaking of his running away from Saul, the cords of death encompassed me. The torrents, torrents, it's in water. The torrents of destruction assailed me. Those are torrents. You can say there's not literally any torrents for him like there was for Jonah. True, yet he can borrow that language because that's how he felt. Or again, the sons of Korah in a later psalm say this to God, Your wrath has swept over me. Sound familiar? Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. This is the same language Jonah is using, but when Jonah says it, it's literal. When they say it, it's how they felt if they can take that language and see, wow, that describes exactly the suffering in running from Saul or whatever, we too can take this description and apply it to our suffering and ourselves and say, wow, this gives me a voice for what I'm experiencing within right now, whatever your trial may be. Now, we might wonder why God would choose this oceanic language to talk about suffering, but I think if you Take a moment with me and just consider this language, it will soon become obvious to you if you've suffered at all, that this is excellent language that you can use in your prayers or when you're processing your own suffering, because it actually really helps you understand, wow, this is exactly what a sufferer goes through. Of course, every sufferer is different, but this is some wonder, a wonderful template. I think that's true for two reasons. And if you look closely at the way Jonah describes his agony, you'll see those two reasons. Why is this so fitting to describe his pain? I think the first reason is because when he's in the water, if you're submerged in water, it's summer, you've been swimming, okay, you're in the water underneath it. When you're under the water, where is the water? It is above you. It's below you. It's on this side. If you look over here, It's on this side, it's behind. It's literally everywhere around you. To be submerged in water, that's kind of the joy of swimming. But to be submerged in the water, it's on every part of you. It's actually a very unique experience. You don't have many other experiences like that. But being in water does that. And that's something that Jonah emphasizes here. That he was surrounded. Look in verse 5, he says, The deep surrounded me. He doesn't have to point that out because you've been in water. You know if you're in the deep, it surrounds you. But he wants you to focus on that. The deep surrounded me. More than just the water, and this is interesting, the weeds, maybe the seaweed or some kind of floor in the water, were wrapped about my head. So he's even surrounded there. Verse 3 has a similar idea. The flood surrounded me. This is a good description of the suffering that you've experienced because you know that if you encounter one difficult circumstance, maybe an inconvenience in your life, a difficult coworker, or what have you, or perhaps a smaller sort of sickness, that's painful. But you know that the hardest seasons of your life have probably been when several difficulties have compounded together at the same time. It's one thing for one of Job's servants to run and say, hey, something terrible has happened. That's painful. But what makes the story of Job so difficult is that one servant after another servant after another servant comes to him until literally everything is wiped out of his life. Then that drives him to the ash heap and to chapter upon chapter of grieving. It was this compounding as if one might say. He was submerged so that these trials were everywhere around him. He can't even lift his head to breathe the air. He's under the water. And you know, in your suffering, you felt that way. Maybe some of you this morning feel that way right now. You can't even get up for air. It's crushing you. You are everywhere you look in your life. Confronted with difficulty. Where's the rest? Where's the respite? Where's the oasis that you're looking for? Maybe you can't find it. Maybe with Jonah, there is no rest. There is no respite. You are fully surrounded. That's the idea of the surrounding language. It's this compounding of problems. Now, there are many people who have talked about, if you've experienced, you can use whatever term you want, Depression, discouragement, disheartenment. But if you face that in your own life, a season where you've been deeply depressed, difficult to get out of bed. Not always, but oftentimes, there is this spiral of depression that takes place, which is you start to lose heart, there's a difficult circumstance in your life, and because you've lost heart, you lose some motivation and you have some responsibility that you should be fulfilling, maybe eating well and exercising, taking care of your family, going to work and Because you've lost heart, you begin to neglect that responsibility. But in neglecting that responsibility, that gets you down. And you become discouraged because now you're not fulfilling your responsibilities and you feel like a failure. So now you lose heart. But now that you've lost even more heart, you're even less motivated to do what God is calling you to do until you have spiraled down to the bottom of the ocean. You get to a place where you feel like Jonah, you're trapped. There's not an easy way out. It's not like your foot's wet. You are literally submerged. That's when it becomes difficult to get out of bed, to find any motivation. There seems like there's no hope. Very much like the language that you find here. I think this is why Jonah is emphasizing for us today that he was surrounded by seaweed, by water, by the deep it wasn't a minor inconvenience, it was his entire life. His expectation while he was at the bottom of the ocean was that he was about to die. There was no sense of hope just yet. So you can see that this idea of drowning is actually a very good way to express feeling overwhelmed. Overwhelmed, that's the same idea, if you feel that way. This idea of drowning that Jonah is expressing literally is also a very good expression of your suffering in another way, and that's in the other language that he uses. Look here, not only are you surrounded everywhere by water, but he also emphasizes how low down he is. For example, he prays the waters closed in over me to take my life. Again, he found himself, he says, at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land, that's the underworld here, whose bars closed upon me forever. And he had said in verse 2, he had talked about the belly of, not the fish, but Sheol, the land of the dead, down. And verse 3, the heart of the seas, down, down into the water. He even adds, all your waves and your billows, again, or your breakers, passed over me so not only is he emphasizing that he's surrounded by water everywhere he looks, but he's really emphasizing in this psalm the fact that he's descended downward. He uses that term that he's at the roots of the mountains, meaning the mountain with the top part out of the water, and then you go into the water, and if you followed that down all the way until you've reached the very bottom of the earth, in his mind. And there he is. You can't go any lower. Doesn't your suffering feel exactly that same way? Just think about all of the uh, cliches or idioms that we use when we talk about being very discouraged. You say that you feel down or you feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. You're at a real low point. You've hit rock bottom. You can't get out from under this burden. Almost as if You're at the roots of the mountains with an ocean on top of you. (laughs) Very good language. That's what he's expressing there. He was as far down as he could go. That's the way we talk about discouragement or depression as well. And even that last image of the prophet is very telling when he says the bars of that place had closed upon me forever. And that's a part of suffering, isn't it? If you have a difficulty in your life, You're down, you're surrounded, it's overwhelming, but you know that in one month it all goes away. You can endure that month. You could do almost anything for a month. But what happens with suffering is just what happened with Jonah, is there you are completely surrounded, completely overwhelmed, crushed at your lowest point, and you see no possibility of the bars, the gates, opening up for you to emerge. It was as if, he says, the bars of Sheol of death itself, had closed, clinked shut, and there was no way for him to open it. And if you've been in that position of suffering as a believer or an unbeliever, you know that feeling. It's really not the immediate suffering you're experiencing. That's so hard. That is hard. But it's the fact that you don't know when it's going to end or you have to endure it for a long time. Jonah's expectation, with a little bit of hope, trickled in, we see in the text, but his expectation is... I will die now. And if you were at the bottom of the ocean, that would be your expectation as well. And if you are at the bottom of the ocean, that may be your expectation even today. It feels permanent. You're a believer and you have a romantic relationship and it ends. Your heart breaks. But what's most painful there is the sense, how will I ever get over this? Or again... Maybe you have sinned. It's had a very detrimental effect on your family or on others. It seems like everything's crumbling. Your whole life's falling apart now. But what's most difficult about that is you go, I can't imagine things being fixed. It seems like it's a permanent thing. That experience, uh, in Jonah's case, makes perfect sense because he's at the bottom of the ocean. But when you're suffering, it's actually rather ironic situation because you've probably experienced when you're overwhelmed and crushed and disheartened and depressed it's at that time the devil comes in and works very hard to shake foundations of your faith to try to get you to question even some of the basics is there even a God? is he good? why would he let this happen? so some of the most foundational parts of your life begin to waver but there's one article of faith that actually solidifies, and you believe more than you've ever believed it in your life, and that is things will never get better. (laughs) It's actually a very unlikely article of faith. For most people, things get better. But you come to believe that, the devil's stoking the fire. He's causing it to be colder, and the ice to form around that conviction. The bars have closed forever. So I hope you can see that What Jonah experienced here is actually very parallel and a very good way of expressing the suffering that you experience and have to experience in this life. There's one more part to the pain, still that first point, that pain of Jonah's experience here. We've kind of, I've taken this and I've applied it in a sort of general way, which I think is fair, the Psalms do that, to say any suffering that you're experiencing can be expressed like this. However you good exegetes, I know you're thinking, wait a minute, Jonah caused this on himself. This isn't just he got an illness. This is he sinned against God and God's wrath or judgment here, God's judgment comes and he gets cast into the sea. You are a good exegete. In fact, that's what Jonah himself says. So if we start to work our way backward from just that plain description in verses 5 and 6 to the verses before it in verses 3 and 4, That's exactly what Jonah says. Notice where the pain came from. Jonah says, for you, God, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows, yours, passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. If you read verses 5 and 6, and sometimes psalms are like this, you read verses 5 and 6 and you read verses 3 and 4 and you say, it seems like he's saying exactly the same thing. Just a little bit different. But actually in this case, there's a rather large difference between those verses. 5 and 6, God isn't present there. Jonah is simply telling you, this is my experience. But in verses 3 and 4, he's done some theological reflection and he's acknowledging where the pain came from. In his case, and this is not true of all your suffering, so you've got to distinguish this, but in Jonah's case, he's suffering, he's feeling pain because he ran away from God. It's his fault. He's getting what he wanted. You remember Jonah from the very beginning has been trying to go away from God. He's actually been trying to go down. Literally, that word in the Hebrew, "going down," has appeared several times. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the hole of the boat, and now he's going down into the water. And you say, Jonah, you finally got what you wanted. You wanted to go down to get away from God. So now there you are at the roots of the mountains. That's as far down as you can go. And he says, "I feel like I'm driven away from the sight of God." Isn't that what you wanted? But do you know how this works? The pain that comes from our own sin, you get tricked into it. It is your fault. It's your responsibility, just like it was Jonah's. But it lures you in. And once you finally get what it's promising you, you regret it. Jonah got what he wanted and realized, oh, wow, that's not actually what I wanted at all. Because what Jonah ends up getting, and he says that right there in the text, I said, so he's thinking back when he was drowning, I said, I'm driven away from your sight. This isn't just a general pain or suffering. This is, I've sinned against you and you've rejected me. Let me have my own way. I will die at the bottom of this ocean because of my own rebellious decisions. You've suffered because of what others have done or things outside of your control. That's hard. But you've also suffered because of things you've done. That's harder. And that's what Jonah is doing right here. The re- part of the reason that's harder is it becomes more difficult to believe God's grace when you're the reason your life is so hard. It's like we saying about being forgiven. That becomes difficult because you caused your own pain. God lets you have the consequences. You wanted to get away from God. He lets you have your way. And now you feel like I'm far from his sight. I'm driven away. He wants nothing to do with me. I've made my decision, and he's let me make it. That's the end of the story, and now I perish forever. This is why, for example, when you look at Jesus in the garden on the Mount of Olives, just before he is crucified, he sweats drops of blood anticipating his own death. And yet, when you look at the history of Christianity, Martyr after martyr after martyr, suffering similar tortures and excruciating experiences, they don't sweat drops of blood. Some of them have been very bold. Think of Perpetua, that young Christian woman in the early church who was killed in the Colosseum for her faith. It says she even took the executioner's blade and guided it toward her throat. So what makes the difference between Jesus in the garden and Perpetua boldly dying for the faith? It's this sense right here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not the physical pain. Jesus could take that. He's not afraid of the nails and the whips, as unpleasant as those are. It's that when he goes upon the cross, in order for him to take my place as a sinner, he has to be in some mysterious manner. How do you even put it? Cursed of God. And that breaks him. You know in your own suffering, that's what breaks you too. Usually the most. If you know that God is for you, you believe, Romans 8, that nothing can separate you from Christ's love, not sword, persecution, famine, then if sword, persecution, famine come into your life, you feel like more than a conqueror. You go with perpetua. You guide the blade. You take it because God is for you and who can be against you. But what happens when you don't think God is for you? When the devil has come in with his lies and you have placed your faith in Christ but the devil has come and lured you in like the adulteress in the Proverbs whose ways, her steps lead down to death and you followed her into that dungeon, into that cellar and you get there and then all of a sudden the pleasure you were promised disappears and the devil, that adulterous woman in that text turns around and begins not luring you with kind words but now accusing you. Ha! Ha! Just like the devil when he tempted Jesus said, if you're the son of God, now he turns to you because you've sinned and says, if you're a child of God, God's not going to own Jonah. God's not going to own you. You've brought this on yourself. God is nothing but disappointed with you. Don't try to call out to him now Yeah." Great time to call out. Now that he's pinched you, now you're going to call out to him. He's not going to buy that. You've brought this on yourself. You deal with the consequences. Those are all the words the devil gives you in that time. He emphasizes the permanence of God forsaking you. In the future, God's not going to accept you. Maybe convinces you you've committed the unpardonable sin. Whatever is necessary, the devil does it to get you to believe that God does not care about you. You've lost his fatherly care. He who began the good work in you will not be faithful to complete it. These are all the things the devil says. That's what causes the greatest pain. That's why suffering or pain that you bring into your own life is the hardest. And that's what is experiencing right here. He's suffering for what he himself has done. So here is pain just described. And I hope you can see how Jonah's pain, very literal for him, also describes the suffering that you've experienced and will experience in your life in many ways. Now we are waiting until next week to emphasize the second part of the psalm which is about hope. However, you noticed, I bet, good exegete that you are, you noticed that even in this first part, while he's talking mostly about his pain, there are also glimpses of hope. And if you are, this morning, surrounded and covered and feel cut off from God, I hope that you also can find at least glimpses of hope, like Jonah did. The first glimpse of hope we find as we move now outlines as we move from pain to the prayer it's producing, the first hope we find is the fact that God has used Jonah's pain to make him pray. Look again at those first lines, which these first lines summarize the whole thing. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my Voice. Notice that Jonah doesn't say, I cried, called out to the Lord out of my very pleasant circumstances as an honored prophet of Israel. Actually, he wasn't calling out then. <laughs> he doesn't say, I called out to the Lord out of my prosperity when I was making all of my house and car payments quite easily and had a little extra buffer in the bank. He doesn't say, I called out to the Lord, even out of fear when the storm first came, when the captain was begging him to do it, call out to your God, but you don't see him doing it in the text. When does he call out to the Lord? Out of my distress. Not till he gets to the roots of the mountains. And then he prays. Now, what's interesting is you remember in chapter 1, God had commanded Jonah, arise, go, to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And it tells us immediately afterward in verse 3 that he did arise and he did go, but not to Nineveh. And he didn't call out as he was commanded. And that word for call out is the Hebrew karah. And you and I have been waiting for an entire chapter for a karah to take place from Jonah, because that was God's command. Korah, and Jonah's done everything except Korah. The captain of the boat comes and says, Korah to your God, and Jonah won't do it. The lot has to point at him, and he still won't do it. He says, throw me into the water, and now he's at the bottom. He can't go any lower. He's in distress. He's in agony, and you know what the very first word in Hebrew is in this psalm? Korah. <laughs> like an uncle. Uncle, you've got me. He's not calling out to Nineveh yet. He will do that. But he's at least calling out to God. But it took the pain to produce the prayer. There was not another way to do it. This is the way God had decided to bring this about. As a pastor, I mean, and this might be true of you too, not as a pastor, but as a pastor, I meet with a lot of people who are in very deep suffering And it's helpful to be able to be outside of the suffering. I mean, I'm entering in with people, but I'm not living it in the way that you are when I meet with you. When you are in your suffering and you feel completely overwhelmed, it's hard to see anything except the agony, perhaps the confusion, like Luther said, the blasphemy almost. Where is God? You feel those things deeply. You're losing hope. Those are the things that are consuming your vision. What's helpful for me as a pastor is when I meet with people who are suffering and in that circumstance... At least in my experience, I can tell you that you probably don't notice it, but I notice almost every time that when someone enters from a sunny season into misery, they talk a lot more about God. When things are going well, conversation can more easily drift towards sports or hobbies, which are totally fine. Those are great. Let's keep talking about those. I'm not judging you for that, so please keep talking about those. But I'm simply observing that when life gets horrible, I notice that in almost everyone, there becomes spiritual mindedness. Even if it's wondering where God is, at least it's thinking about God. The one thing I don't tend to find in utter agony is someone who hasn't even thought about God yet. This is one of the ways God drives us to prayer. It's a pinches us until it hurts. He turns up the thermostat until we're sweating, until life's getting very difficult. And then we begin looking, what's wrong with the thermostat? <laughs> then we begin asking the spiritual questions. Then we begin turning to God. And it's for Jonah exactly the same way. He's not calling out to God. He's in utter rebellion until God throws him to the bottom of the sea, sticks him in a fish. Three days later, finally, karah Pain produces prayer. Paul says again in Romans 8 that we are groaning inwardly in this messed up world. But as we're groaning inwardly, the Spirit is interceding with groanings too deep for words. The pain of it, of living here, is producing an acceptable prayer to the Lord. Even if you haven't reached the point of hope in your suffering, I guarantee you, you you're at least on a path that if you are trained by it, it leads you toward hope. It puts you on that path. It gets you thinking about God. Think of this. There are millions of people in this world that just like the rich man in Jesus' parable will live a nice and comfortable and fairly easy life and then will all of a sudden slip into an eternity of pain. Asaph looked at these people and said, they have no pangs until their death. That's not a blessing. That's a curse. God disciplines the children he loves. If you're having a hard life right now, if you're a believer, that's evidence that God loves you. Not that he's rejected you. He's driving you to himself. Sometimes he has to get out the ox goad with the pointy tip because we won't go. (laughs) And he starts jabbing. And you start kicking because you don't want that. Because that hurts. And he says... It's pretty hard to kick against the goat. Why don't you just pray? (laughs) Why don't you just go for it? And eventually, after puncture wounds, we finally go. And that's pain-producing prayer. We see it with Jonah. You also see here, not just hope because, wow, Jonah's becoming spiritually minded, finally. (laughs) But you also see that in that agony, even while he was in the water, there was a glimmer of hope as he began turning toward God. You saw this in verse 4. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. There's the pain, but what's next? Yet, I shall again look upon your holy temple. That Hebrew word, ak, at least in this use of it, is a contrast. He's despairing. He's feeling the pain. He's thinking, I'm done for. The bars are closed. There's no hope. But, as is often the case when you're most despairing, sometimes by God's grace, just the smallest bit of light comes through that closed curtain, maybe around the corner of it. And it just gives you a little bit of hope. And that's what Jonah is expressing here. Even though I'm struggling in this pain, yet even in this agony, there at least is this glimmer of hope. I will go to your temple. Jonah, as a prophet in the northern kingdom, while the temple belonged to the southern kingdom, may never have gone to the temple. And perhaps even in returning didn't go. That may well be the case. He was from the north. His focus isn't really on the geography, even here. His focus is on that's where God manifests his presence. The glimmer of hope that Jonah received in his suffering was, I'll see you. Just like Job. Even if you crush me, yet in my flesh I shall see God. (laughs) And when you're at your lowest point, I hope that same hope at least peeks around the curtain to tell you, At least to get you to question that certain article of your faith that God has cast you off forever, there can never be hope. Hopefully, you'll at least doubt that just a little bit. Here, I want to sow some seeds of doubt on that. I will go to the temple and see God again. Even though I brought this sin on myself, even though I deserve this, even though I'm at the bottom of the ocean and it's all around me and my whole life's falling apart, yet I believe, I don't know how, but I believe I am going to the temple and I will see God. I will experience His favor again. Notice there that God's breakers, His billows, ESV has it. I think other translations say breakers. That's a very fitting term. Those are waves that break upon the rocks. But here, God uses them to break His saints. And He uses them to break Jonah. He uses them in your life to break you, to drive you to prayer. And always in such a way that there's still at least a little bit of hope. No matter what the devil does, no matter how much cold water he pours upon the furnace, just like in the Pilgrim's Progress, mysteriously, there's a man behind the fireplace puffing up the fire as the devil tries to put it out. That little bit of hope that remains. Brothers and sisters, you will suffer. I would like to take that away from you, and I can't do it. And you can't do it. So expect that. Let that be your new normal. That's what's going to happen in this life. You will feel surrounded. You will feel crushed. And God will feel distant. And what will you do then? And this is the only time I'm making this exception. I tell you every week, don't be like Jonah. Jonah. This is the only time I'm reversing that, okay? Be like Jonah. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Let's do that. Lord, I thank you immensely from the heart, together with my brothers and sisters in Christ, that you have kindly allowed pain into our lives. And it is... Necessary. It is not to be feared and avoided. It's not, it's bad. It's bad. It is bad, very bad. But the way you're using it will force it to be good. And I'm sure right now you have people who are in a very low point right here. And I want to pray for them, Lord, and ask that you who can comfort the heart in ways that no one else can, would comfort them with your very own comfort, would give them the peace. As Christ said, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, not when the bank account's full and the body's healthy, but your peace that transcends understanding and somehow survives the greatest flurry of trials possible, that fire causes only the dross to burn away and faith and the joy to emerge more strongly. I pray that would be true here for all of your people for any who by their own sin have brought agony into their own life that you would reaffirm your love for them as they walk repentantly and I pray that you would teach us from this psalm how to suffer in a way that's pleasing to you by striving for hope by turning our minds to you and by being trained by it in Christ's name we pray Bye.